0: Good evening, everyone. If you take God's word, please turn to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, and we will talk about zeal for fervent singing this evening. I have thoroughly enjoyed my time with you. I appreciate your uh, excellent uh, encouragement and your warm and friendly welcome to me, and I've thoroughly enjoyed my time here, so I appreciate the invitation of the elders to be with you, and I want to highly commend you, and I appreciate you Sending and help sending support to and helping to encourage the work in Uganda. The brethren, there are very uh, eager and hungry for the word. I know on uh, Facebook, Brother Emmanuel Moizara, he sent his greetings to the church here and how much he appreciated the church here. And uh, just this evening before we uh, got out of the car, Brother Wandera Peter uh, wrote me and just wanted to know how Bob was doing. And uh, I appreciate you allowing Bob to, to go with me. He's a great co-worker in the um, gospel work over there very talented uh, bible teacher and um, you know uh, it was it, it was a lot of fun to see bob panic a few times uh, when we were trying to get out of uganda and and uh, for some reason i wanted to get the cheapest taxi driver i could find and so uh, you get what you pay for we're about three miles from the airport we run out of gas and it's dark there's no street lights and there's just people buzzing around and, and what are we going to do? And we have to flag down a taxi on a, a motorcycle taxi. And he takes uh, one of the preachers and they go get a jug of gasoline and we get the gas in there and we got to get to the airport where we're going to get left behind. And then we go about two miles and then we have a flat tire. And then we flag down a bus and we got to get on the bus and we try to get on the bus and the guy did not want to let us on for some reason. And the preacher, they had an argument in Swahili. I don't know what they said, but he let us on and we... We barely made it. And, uh, I think, you know, Bob did an excellent job. You know, when you're up there preaching, I mean, Bob would be preaching and teaching. There'd be chickens that would be walking in to the place, uh, where we would be teaching. And so, but, uh, he handled it all very well and, I look forward to going again sometime. Hope that this uh, series of lessons has been helpful, and it's been helpful to me personally. And I sent an article to Bob, and I hope he prints it out. Maybe next Sunday have that. There's like 16 different words in the New Testament that are synonyms for zeal. And in this article, I list the different verbs that that we are to be zealous about. We are to to exalt in the hope of the glory of God. We are to be abounding in the work of the Lord. Uh, Romans chapter 12 and verse 11, would to be diligent, not to be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. The word there, fervent, is a verb form of zeal. And so am I on fire for the Lord? And part of our fervency in the Lord's service is our zeal for enthusiastic singing. In the course of about a year, we will have sung, a typical congregation will have sung about 500 hymns. Been here 10 years, that'll be about 5,000 hymns that are sung, the typical congregation. We think about the quality of those hymns. Were they the very best that we could give to our Lord? I think in my travels and going to different congregations, I have not seen a strong-going church that had bad singing or had dead singing or lackluster singing because the quality of our singing or the energy and enthusiasm of our singing is a reflection of the energy that we have in our soul and how we see God and how we respond to the greatness of God. And one thing um, you, you see all throughout the, the Bible is this, this concept here in numbers, I mean, uh, Psalm 95 verse 1, let us sing for joy to the Lord and let us shout, let us shout, joyfully to the rock of our salvation if you just get your concordance and look up how many times it talks about old testament and new testament about shouting or singing aloud with joy or they sang with a loud voice and what's the significance of that why is that repeated so many times because it shows their dedication their zeal their fervency in praising god that God is so great and so high and so wonderful that we want to put our all into worshiping our great God. So really this fervency in singing is an indication or barometer of the emotional energy that we have in praising God based on being impressed with the greatness of God. clear impression must precede meaningful expression. If my worship, you know, worship is dull... To dull people, okay? If you don't see the greatness of God, you're going to ask, what's the big deal? But when by faith and love we see that God is greater and higher than anything that we could possibly imagine, that will motivate really great fervency in our seeing. So it's a great barometer or a great way to take our our spiritual temperature, uh, how alive spiritually I am. Now we're going to read from Romans chapter 15, the imperative to fervency in our singing. And these are some verses that talk about a cappella singing. The word a cappella means in the style of the church, the historical form. If you look at church history, is vocal singing only. And you'll notice in these verses we're going to read in Romans chapter 15. Let's look at verse 6. He says, With one accord, one mind, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The context here was about the uh, dissension or conflict they had between Jew and Gentile in eating of meats and observing days. That was a matter of opinion under the New Testament law of Christ. He goes on to say in verse 9, And as for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy as it is written, Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. Again, he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the people praise him. So these are some words here that indicate really some spiritual fervency in our worship together. When it says they were of one mind, it's the same word that's used over in Acts chapter 2 in verse 46. And uh, one mind is not just the idea of one opinion. And it's good if you have a Vines Expository Dictionary or a Young's Analytical Concordance. It'll give you the word in the original. And sometimes it's helpful to give you an insight into the uh, nuance of the word. And I think is helpful. But the word homothumadon, homo means the same, like homogenized milk is the same. The thumadon, that part comes from thumos, which uh, in a negative sense is used of anger. In a positive sense, it mean a passion. So they were of one passion. And you can relate to that. I mean, if you have a, a room full of, of Alabama fans and they got their Alabama t-shirts on, they're of one mind. But that's not of any mild opinion, is it? I mean, you know these people, are they have a passion for something. So that's what there says. It's of one passion. What is our passion? If we have this passion for God, we're not going to have worship weariness. We're not able to come to church. We're going to miss it. Then that word glorify, verse 6 and 9, that word glorify means full of honor to magnify. What does it mean to magnify? When I worship God and when we sing, we want to magnify. We want to make it large. We don't want to be small. We want to make it large. In other words, we want to make it the very best that we can. The word rejoice, verse 10, different words for rejoice in the New Testament. This... um, word for rejoice is the same word used in Luke chapter 15 where the father said when the prodigal came home that we had to rejoice and make merry the King James says or celebrate the New American Standard says so this idea of rejoicing verse 10 that describes our singing is a celebration And it's the idea of of, uh, being, it's a spiritual excitement about the greatness of God. That we are everlasting victors through Jesus Christ. That I'm a child of God. That I'm on the winning side. That God is for me. And in the end we have the privilege of being with God forever. That's, That's something to get excited about. Can't get excited about that. Take your pulse to see if you are alive, okay? And the idea of praise, verse 11. Praise, that word means to extol. And what does that mean to extol? means to lift up on high. want to raise it up. Again, the idea of putting our very best into worship. I want you to turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15 about the importance of sacrificial worship. When I come to worship God, when I sing, it's, it's not just mumbling some words. The idea, it is a sacrifice. And what is the idea of a sacrifice? Let's read Hebrews 13, verse 15. Hebrews 13, verse 15. It says, through him or Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that gives thanks to his name. A sacrifice is something that cost me something. It's not something that's left over. Uh, it, it reflects my dedication to God. How dedicated am I to God? If I want to give my heart, soul, strength, mind, all that I have in love to God, that my, my worship, I'm going to be totally focused, I'm not going to allow distractions to continually pull me away from focusing on the greatness of God. Uh, I think what happens in our, you know, sometimes we're, we're worried and I, I've always felt better coming to worship. I've never felt worse after coming to worship because coming to worship helps us to take our mind off our problems and put it on the problem solver. So sacrifice is this idea of focus and dedication. And it's the very best bef- effort we can give Psalm 103 verse 1. All that is within me, give thanks to his holy name so the price is high in order to be a disciple it's all that i can give but the price is low anybody can give that anybody can give their best god is an equal opportunity savior but i want you to notice that god doesn't accept mediocre offerings just because i show up mumble some words That doesn't necessarily mean God is pleased. Let's turn over to Malachi chapter 1, where they were suffering from worship weariness. In the uh, uh, historical context of the book of Malachi, children of Israel came out of Babylon in captivity, 538. They rebuilt the temple, uh, finished about 516 B.C., rebuilt the walls starting, uh, Ezra came back 458 restored the law 444 bc rebuilt the walls under nehemiah then about 400 bc about 40 years after nehemiah came back and they rebuilt the walls and they had this great enthusiasm and a great worship revival you have in in numbers chapter 12 where it says where they dedicated the walls and the shout of joy was heard far away In the course, of about 40 years, their worship had degenerated into worship weariness. And they were in a rut in their worship. You know what a rut is? It's a grave with both ends knocked out. And we read here in Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, where God says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I'm a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest? Who despise my name? But you say, How have we despised your name? What are you talking about? We don't know what you're talking about. Verse 7, You are presenting defiled food upon my altar, because you say, How have we defiled you? in that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer that to your governor? That will they wouldn't, because it'd be an insult. Would he be pleased with you or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now, will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us with such an offering on your part? Will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? And he says, verse 10, Oh, that there was one among you would shut the gates, that you, would my, that you would not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you for from the rising of the sun, even to a setting, my name will be great among the nations. The priest, he says, they said the table of the Lord is despised. And the idea is they would bring these, the lame and the blind for sacrifice, the leftovers, the things that they didn't want. And the priest would accept it. And he's, and the reason the priest would accept it, the, uh, some of the sacrifices, that's how they were fed, and if they didn't take it, they wouldn't get anything to eat, so they're going to take it anyway. And you want you to know, Matthew Henry, several years ago, this is about 400 years ago, Matthew Henry wrote this, uh, 350 years ago or so, if we worship God ignorantly and without understanding, we bring the blind for sacrifice. You know, only God is permanently interesting. He goes on to say, if we do it carelessly, if we are dull and dead in it, we bring the sick. If we rest in the bodily exercise and without heart, we bring the lame. If we suffer distractions to lodge within us, we bring the torn. And is not this evil? Is, is it not a great affront to God and a great injury to our own souls so when we read about them in the book of malachi the very thing you know can apply to us and only i can know about me if i'm not thinking if i'm not concentrating if i'm not focused on god if i'm not totally dedicated only you know about you of course we understand the idea of scriptural singing in john chapter 4 and verse 23 and 24 when jesus talked to a samaritan one at samaritan woman at uh, jacob's well so God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth, in spirit and in truth. And we have to, as a Christian, a mature Christian, is able to keep that proper balance in tandem. Because some, just want to just the, the outward form, that's the main deal. And there's others that said, no, no, it's how you feel and they're all about the excitement of worship. And they think the, the form is secondary as long as you you get something out of it. And, and both, accept, acceptable worship to God is both in truth. That is doctrinally accurate. John chapter 17 verse 17 says, this, Sanctify him in the truth, in the truth. Your word is truth. I've heard some brethren say that, well, in spirit and in truth, in truth means um, truly or genuinely. But that would seem to be a redundancy. if Isn't in spirit genuinely from the inner man? So I think that phrase in truth in John means in accordance with God's revealed truth. And then in spirit means spiritually enthused. It's with my whole being. Years ago I read an article, it was a track actually, called Worship in Spirit and in Truth. And what was shocking to me in this track? Here's a track that's, what does the Bible say about worship in spirit and in truth? They were all about the five acts of worship. There was not one word I could find about spirit. So when we think about the balance here of worship and spirit and in truth, that's doctrinally accurate and spiritually enthused. Which is more important? Uh, I would say when you go fly on an airplane, which one of those two wings are more important? You know, if you don't have both of those wings, you're not going to go anywhere. I mean, if one of those wings falls off, you're in trouble. The idea is you've got to have both those wings for our worship to fly up to God in an acceptable way. So when we, we think about our singing, sometimes people ask, what did I? I didn't get anything out of the worship. What did you get out of the worship? What, what, you know, what do we get out of it? First question, what does God get out of it? God has been honored. Jesus taught us in our praying to our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And that idea of hallowing the name of God is God's name is to be revered. So it is to be God-centered, not man-centered. And it's very deceptive. Sometimes we think, oh, I'm so spiritual if I feel good, but really I'm doing it for me and I'm not doing it for God. God has to be honored. And it needs to be scriptural in form and words and heart. 2 Timothy 1.13 says to hold fast to the pattern of sound words. All that God says on any topic is God's pattern on that topic. The Bible is a complete and perfect God. God has said everything that he wants us to know about worship, about the work of the church. And so God has said is enough. And we should be satisfied if we trust God to stay within the bounds of biblical authority And one of the interesting things when people ask the question about instrumental music in the worship of the church, and they'll cite the Psalms, where in the temple, in a physical temple, where they had physical sacrifices, they did have physical instruments. I read one reference work, I think 108 Psalms are quoted in the New Testament. And never once does it quote the ones that have instrumental music in it. So I think... This, the, the silence of the scriptures that they are, they are conspicuous the instruments are conspicuous by their absence because it's the idea of it's a spiritual kind of and we do have an instrument you know what that instrument is? the Bible says the heart Ephesians 5.19 that we are to make melody or make music with our heart and that's something anybody can do so, the instrument that God wants is us to, to put our whole heart into it. So, it is to be scriptural in form and forming words. And the word acapella means in the style of the church. And that was something that was very clear, even though you the, they understood the Greek language. There's some people that appeal to Solo and Salmos. They understood the Greek language and they spoke that. The instrument is named when you have uh, to solo as the direct object. And it's the heart, that's the instrument that's authorized in the New Testament. And even though the Greeks and the Jews had instruments, they didn't. So it's conspicuous by the absence of instruments in the New Testament. And the only reason that people want it in the worship is not because the Bible says so like singing. It's because they like it. That's really the bottom line to that. But another thing that I think is important, and I've, in, in talking to different people, there's different uh, emphasis that people have. But some people think as long as it's the scriptural words and as long as it's acapella, how it sounds to us really doesn't matter. And they may say that because, you know, not everyone is musically talented, and I understand that. Uh, You don't have to be a music major to go to heaven. But when you get enough people together, this musical ability is what God has endowed us with. And that I believe that the scriptural principle that we should strive to make it to be uplifting. It should sound good or be uplifting to us. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24, we're to consider one another to provoke or stimulate and to love and good deeds. Our singing should be stimulating or uplifting. And part of that is the music, the vocal music or the sound of it. 1 Corinthians fourteen twenty six: let all be done for edification. If you were to listen to singing, here's some singing. It's, all, it's slow, it drags, it's off key. Uh, here's some singing that just, it sounds really good. It's scriptural and it sounds really good. Which of the two are you going to be more edified by Now, I guess if you're tone deaf, it doesn't matter. But for most people, if it sounds good, it's more edifying. So we don't want to overemphasize the sound because the main thing is to honor God and to be scriptural. But that is a part of it. That's really what's the difference between praying and singing. Singing has a musical component added to it. Praying is where we say it. Songs are where we sing. R.J. Stephen wrote uh, several years ago: Some members of the churches of Christ are more against instrumental music and worship than they are for singing. Sometimes brethren have majored in minors and minored in majors on this subject. Some have almost broken their arms patting themselves on the back because we don't use instrumental music in worship while at the same time putting little emphasis on singing as God commanded. So uh, y'all have good singing here. And like any other aspect of the work of the church, we always evaluate what we're doing. Can we, how do we improve? How can we make it better? I think how do we motivate ourselves individually to have more fervency in our singing? Uh, the motivation comes being all by the greatness of God. uh, Romans chapter 15 verse 9 a verse that we read that they would glorify God's name and God's name is more than the letters G-O-D the name in the Bible stands for the person the spiritual attributes of God and we are impressed with the greatness of God his greatness is beyond all telling and I want you to turn with me as we read from Revelation chapter 4 which uh, this is one of the verses that I like to use when in my worship when I think about I'm offering my worship before the throne of God, the control center of the universe, where God's enthroned in resplendent majesty. This is what I see. Revelation chapter 4, verse 2. John says, immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven. There's chaos, there's persecution on earth, but at the center of the universe, there's a throne standing. And one sitting on the throne. He who was sitting was like a jasper stone. It's bright white. And a sardis in appearance. That's bright red. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance like the artist has depicted on the screen there. And around the throne were 24 thrones. Upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their head. Revelation is a symbolic book, and I think 12 is a number for the redeemed, like the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. And so this is probably a symbolic of the redeemed from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Below, there was the great tribulation. But in heaven, it was perfectly calm. Above the clouds, the sun is always shining. It's perfectly calm there with God at the center of the universe. And then he describes the four living creatures, which is a symbol of nature in the service of God. In verse 8, the four living creatures, each of them having six wings and are full of eyes around him within, and day and night. They do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. The holiness of God evokes transcendent wonder and awe. I have in my library a book of sermons by floyd thompson he preached out in california and in the back his, his widow put this together after he passed away and in the back are vignettes of, of what people uh appreciated about him and his work as a preacher and brother ed harrell had a note about when he went in a gospel meeting they would always read uh, the, the brother and sister thompson would always read the bible together at breakfast at 8 a.m and when a preacher was visiting uh, he would join them for breakfast and they have their bible reading and brother Thompson read this very passage, and at the very end of that, when he was overwhelmed with the majesty of God and was choked up with tears, and Brother Harold says, I can never read this passage without thinking of Brother Thompson's reverent reading of this passage. So I encourage you, this is a thing when we come before God that we're not just saying words, but we are presenting our worship the very best we can to the Almighty of the universe. And we should be awed by the greatness of God's name as the He is the all-knowing, all-powerful, omnipotent Creator. This is a picture of the evening sky. There's a small little square out to the left of the moon. And uh, someone uh, expanded that. And when you see the, the picture at the bottom, there are many little dots of light. What are all those little dots of light? Well, there are millions of galaxies. You think about the universe. The Bible tells us in Psalm 19 and verse 1, when the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows his handiwork. When you think about the, the, the vastness of the universe, the, the nearest star... Is 4.3 light years away, Alpha Centauri. I remember that from Lost in Space as a kid watching that. And light goes 186,000 miles per second. You can go around the circumference of the Earth eight times in one second, speed of light. Takes you four years to get to Alpha Centauri, that's just the first star. And to go across our Milky Way galaxy, it takes you about 10,000 years. That's just one galaxy. There are billions of galaxies. Have you ever wondered why did God make the universe so big? Mostly empty space. The psalmist said to impress us with the greatness of God. God is a big God. He is a great God. And when we doubt and when we struggle, is your God too little? We look at the vast greatness and complexity of the universe. We serve and praise a great God. So the vastness of the universe shows how great God is and how little we are. And then even when we look at uh, life itself, the complexity of life, the psalmist said, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. From the mouth of infants, you have perfected praise. Praise. The, 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 the intricate design of each human body. The average human body has 40 trillion cells in it. Uh, each cell has DNA in it, the genetic blueprint, to reproduce every feature that we have. And I'm told it would fill like about 100 volumes of a print edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica. You know, information always comes from intelligence. For someone to say that, that life created itself out of nothing, someone said, well, to get the DNA code and all that would be like an explosion in a print shop. And that all the, uh, the letters just blew up and then you would have an unabridged dictionary. So you have this, uh, everywhere we are confronted with the greatness and grandeur of God. In Acts 16, verse 25, when Paul and Silas were preaching the gospel, and what did they get for preaching the gospel? They were beaten up and they were thrown in jail. And what were they doing at midnight? Were they singing the blues? Were they say, woe is me, poor pitiful me. They were praying and singing praises to God. God is still God regardless of what happens to me. He's still a great God. And he has done me no disservice if something tragic happens to me. In fact, it's an opportunity for me to draw upon his power to glorify him in whatever situation I find myself. Another motivation for this fervent singing is to be thankful for God's mercy. And we read that, remember Romans 15 verse 9. The Gentiles would give thanks to God for His mercy. And you know, when we talk about singing, there is an extended section in the Old Testament that foretells our singing in the Messianic era. And we can measure ourselves. Uh, is this, Does this characterize my singing and the enthusiasm of my worship? And I'm now turning over to Isaiah chapter 12. Isaiah chapter 12. The context is, I think, clearly messianic because it says in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 10 that the nations would resort to the root of Jesse. The root of Jesse is a reference to the descendant of Jesse, which would be David and then uh, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And notice what it says here in Isaiah chapter 12 about the motivation to thank God for his mercy. Isaiah 12, 1, and then you will say on that day, what day is that? The day you resort to the root of Jesse, the Messianic age. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you are angry with me, your anger is turned away. You know, God knows everything about us. He knows every single sin, every bad, disgusting thing that we have done. And he still wants us back. And you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. When you are parched in a desert land and you find some water, you're excited because without water you die. And in that day you will say give thanks to the Lord and call on his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Make them remember that his name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song for he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud. You remember I said about fervency and worship. How often singing it says, Pray to praise God aloud. And shout for joy O inhabitant of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. When it says Salvation saved from what? CPA may save you some money on your taxes. In the World Series, a reliever comes in and he gets a save. But when the Bible talks about salvation, we're talking about salvation from sin, death, and damnation. That's what we're talking about. Rescue from life-threatening danger. And that without God's grace, without God moving heaven and earth... To bring us back, we would be lost. Can you imagine how horrible it would be on the day of judgment and to be separated from God and to be condemned and to be thrown into a lake of fire? The terror that would be. And yet Jesus interpro- interposed his precious blood. He owed a debt, he paid a debt he didn't owe for those who owed a debt they couldn't pay. And I should be, I appreciate then the great, the amazing grace of God and be enthused about that. How fervent my singing is, shows how much I appreciate what God has done for me. This shout for joy reveals this deep spiritual energy of the soul. And uh, in Revelation chapter 5 verse 9 through 12, you have this doxology of praising uh, uh, the father and the son in um in heaven with this hallelujah chorus and the thing i want to point out here in revelation 4 10 11 these 24 elders says they were casting their crowns and the word their crown uh, means a victor's crown in a race and what does that mean when we cast our crowns before god our victory is is based on God, the merit of God. Not that we are so great and wonderful, but all that we have and all that we hope to have comes from God's gracious hand. And when the Bible says in Colossians 3.16 that we are to sing with grace in our hearts, it means I understand what grace is. God's riches at Christ's expense. And also, I think what will help us motivate us in our singing to be thankful to counter many blessings. Psalm one hundred and one, verse three it says, "Forget not all of His benefits." Oh, give thanks unto the Lord for He is good. Verse one, verse three, and forget none of His benefits. I uh, recently met a fellow that he, when he was seventeen years old, he was in a motorcycle a- accident where his spine was severed. He was an athlete, and then he's confined to a wheelchair at 17 years old. And he said one of the things that helped him is he had a gratitude journal. And every day he would write down things he was grateful to God for. And I think that if we count our blessings instead of our bruises, it'll help our outlook. And we remember that we depend upon God for everything, and He depends upon us for nothing. We are simply because God is and as i mentioned we, we we sing with grace in our hearts unto the lord as members of the lord's church we should be in touch with the grace of god we if it wasn't for the grace of god we wouldn't be here every sinner saved is by the grace of god grace is conditionally offered and meeting those conditions is a human responsibility but it's still grace it's still a gift and we should appreciate God's unmerited, unachievable favor. And that makes us very grateful. Not proud, not self-righteous, but very, very grateful. And what will fervent singing from the heart do for a congregation? Remember 1 Corinthians 14, 26, let it all be done for edification. Tim Stevens said, the very best way to rejuvenate dead churches would be to sing them into life. When righteous people worship God with great intensity and devotion, His nature becomes their nature Day by day, that is, we are drawn to the holiness of God and we become what we think about most. Congregational singing will improve when each member, each member, not just the song leaders, not just uh, a few, but each member puts his heart and soul into every word of every song used in worship. Poor congregational singing, in most cases, is a symptom of a deeper problem. When hearts are filled with faith, hope, and love, the song service comes a lie, and we are edified, and God is glorified by that. Okay, so one thing we need to remember about our singing, that vocal, mu- that this is music, and what is music, the science and art of incorporating sounds to produce beauty of form, harmony and expression of emotion. This is something that God gave for us as an outlet or that we are emotional creatures. We should be guided by reason and logic as God is. But we do have feelings and that, this is an outlet for our feelings that God has authorized. Music is pleasing, harmonious sounds. So when we come together, we come prepared Psalm 22, verse 1, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. We need to prepare so our minds are focused. If we kind of rush in and, and are distracted, we're not going to be able to put our best effort into worship. And to focus the mind on the word's meaning, 1 Corinthians 14, 15, to sing with the spirit and the understanding. The context there was about uh, um, spiritual gifts. But I think the application is that we should think about what the words mean. Here I raise my Ebenezer. You've been raising an Ebenezer anywhere? Well, what in the world does that mean? Samuel raised a stone of help. Okay? What does that mean? There are a lot of different words people will read through there and they are not understand. Uh, one fellow read the word, you know, uh, there's a story back in the 1950s. This guy, he uh, was reading about the psaltery. And he didn't know what that word meant, how to pronounce it. And he called it the peasel tree. So the idea is you need to understand what that what words mean when you read the words in the song and give our best effort to God. And also this is a critical role of song leaders. Song leaders can be trained. You know when you have in, in first chronicles, the only thing we know about song leaders is they were skillful. There's a difference between a song leader and a song starter, okay? Song leader is the one that starts, leads, directs, and helps us to bring out the best in our singing. I've seen the difference. I went to Tim Stevens, a singing school that he had with a congregation, and congregation's worship was, it was okay, not great, not bad, just okay. And he worked with them on tempo, not to drag the, the tune and for the song leader to do certain things. It sounded like a different congregation. It's just a development of a skill that any of us can do. Uh, the on two song leaders mentioned Chenaniah. And uh, I was going to remember it. Uh, I can't remember. It's, it's Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 43. It's a real hard name to pronounce. But anyway, but it, it's really helpful in, in lifting up a congregation. And R.J. Stevens has a DVD set of three different DVDs. And he said the three keys to effective song leading is practice, practice. Practice So that when we leave, we can all say we were glad to be here. We'll conclude with reading this hallelujah chorus from the book of Revelation. Revelation 19 verse 1. And after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Then I heard what seemed to be like the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty pills of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns and let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Those are the three words from Romans 15 that we read about singing for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. If we enjoy singing here on earth, that shows we are fit to be ready for heaven because heaven's going to be a great family reunion, a circle around the throne of God. And we'll get to hear the most beautiful, uplifting singing throughout all eternity. So our fervent singing is a foretaste of our excitement in joining heaven's praise of everlasting triumph. It appeals to a spiritually minded person. So thank you for your very kind attention. And I want you to know that if you're not in Christ, you're not going to be with that heavenly celebration. You're going to be thrown into a lake of fire if you're lost, separated from Christ. But you don't have to be. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And he moved heaven and earth to bring you back home. And we invite you to come to Christ tonight and put him on in baptism and walk and follow him to heaven while we stand and sing.